Hello and welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Sheckman, current PhD student of polymer science and engineering. In this podcast, we will be speaking to researchers from around the world to learn about how their research is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy this conversation and that you learn something new. For today's episode, we decided to revisit the subject of green chemistry. My guest for this interview was Dr. Michael Meyer, full professor at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany. Dr. Meyer is a world-renowned researcher of sustainable chemistry. He was the head of the Institute of Organic Chemistry from 2015 to 2018, and in 2016 he was elected president of the working group Nachhaltige Chemie, or Sustainable Chemistry, where he also served as vice president from 2010 to 2014. And just under three years ago, Dr. Meyer became the associate editor of the American Chemical Society's Journal of Sustainable Chemistry and Engineering. Dr. Meyer and his students at KIT are pioneering efforts to develop new synthetic procedures guided by the principles of green chemistry. The sustainable use of renewable resources for polymer chemistry is a major focus of the Meyer Lab, in which they design and investigate highly defined polymer architectures for applications like data storage and drug delivery. In this conversation, Dr. Meyer goes in-depth to define various perspectives of sustainability in green chemistry, providing clear areas of need and examples we can follow ourselves to observe real, measurable improvements. Now, before we get started, I wanted to let you know to listen out for something a little different during this episode. Because we want to make this content as useful to as many people as possible, I've tried to break down the jargon you might hear into, well, something that's maybe a, a little more digestible. So when you hear this noise, I'll be cutting into the interview with some extra bits of information to keep everyone in the loop. And just one more thing before we get started. You can help us out tremendously by simply liking and sharing this episode. Okay, with that done, enjoy the show. When you're trying to to teach about sustainability and green chemistry, I guess I have a couple questions. One, what do those phrases mean to you? And how how would you talk about it in such a way that it doesn't sound like it's just that that is just talk that it's something that we need to really address i mean why do we have to work on it and why do we have to address it i think it's quite obvious because we have environmental problems in the very large scope of sustainable chemistry you can also count things like carbon emissions And of course, climate change is one of the biggest challenges we are heading towards. And with the tools of green chemistry and sustainability, let let me put it in another way. So how is sustainability defined? It's defined as we should act today in such a way that our coming generations have at least the same or better possibilities as we have today. So we shouldn't generate too much waste if you think about the environment. We shouldn't use too much of our fossil resources because they will be gone or we have to provide new resources. I actually like this very basic definition. So act in such a way that the planet is ready for the next generation and the next generation has the same or better possibilities as we do. But You were also asking about the difference or how do you define green chemistry and sustainable chemistry? 
it's also an ongoing discussion in the community, but what I like very much is that green chemistry and the 12, 12 principles announced by Anastas and Warner, they provide a basic tool set and they're very, very, very important. And if you stick and adhere to these basic ground laying principles, you might achieve sustainable chemistry. So you need green chemistry to go to sustainable chemistry. Without green chemistry, there won't be any sustainable chemistry. But then metrics come into play. So, of course, you have to compare and you have to evaluate and you have to, for instance, see if you reduce the carbon footprint or if you avoided toxic chemicals or whatever you're evaluating at this point. And a very important take-home message that I try to get across to students is there is no green chemistry. There is only greener chemistry. So you always have to compare it to something. You cannot say my reaction is green or this is green chemistry, what I'm doing. You always have to compare it to the previous standard and you can say this is more sustainable because I reduced waste. I have a lower carbon footprint. I am not using that toxic chemical anymore. I could substitute it with a renewable, less toxic one. Or because my product is now biodegradable and it doesn't end up in a waste stream or whatever. That's a very good uh, distinction that it's not necessarily green chemistry, it's just greener. It's just more sustainable. And of course, something that is more sustainable now might be regarded as unsustainable in 10 or 15 years because science has gone on and we have new techniques and maybe can also better look and evaluate things. Can you provide a recent example of some kind of advancement in greener chemistry? Anything particular to polymer science? Let's let's take a, an example outside of my lab, and you might have heard of copolymerization of CO2 and epoxides to make polycarbonates. All right, to break this down a little, a copolymerization is the production of a polymer which has more than one type of building block. In this case, the blocks are carbon dioxide, like the gas in the air, and epoxides, a molecular ring in the shape of a triangle where two corners are made of carbon and one quarter is made of oxygen. Now, when you copolymerize carbon dioxide and epoxides together, the resulting polymer product is called a polycarbonate, a tough and transparent plastic that can be molded into virtually any shape, say the blender in your kitchen or the safety glasses I wear in lab. These polycarbonates have a lot of advantages and they can, of course, incorporate CO2 from the environment. A sustainability aspect in the sense that you can use CO2 and by using CO2, using a renewable feedstock, and of course not enough, but you can take some CO2 out of the atmosphere, very positive aspects. Also, they are being commercialized since a very few years. The problem is uh, the main co-monomer is propylene oxide. Epoxides exist in various forms. Propylene oxide is commonly used as the epoxide ingredient for these reactions and is derived from fossil fuels. So, good and bad. It's a typical example of it's greener than it was before, but it's still not absolutely green. Because you still have fossils, you have an epoxide, which is actually quite toxic. But especially industry, it's difficult to make... And especially polymer uh, industry, I have to say, it's difficult to make really step, step changes because most of the consumers are very reluctant. They 
want a certain material property and you have to prove it and it's difficult, it has to be very, very, very cheap. But then let's continue on the example of polyurethane. So this was the polyol component, but a polyurethane also needs an isocyanate. It's not 100% sure, but um, some of them are very, very toxic, maybe cancerogenic, and they're phosgene derived. And phosgene is the worst chemical you can think of. Phosgene is a colorless gas you might want to avoid at all costs. This chemical is responsible for approximately 80% of the 100,000 gas-induced casualties during World War I. Basically, so if we change from polyurethane to a so-called non-isocyanate polyurethane, and this is also something that's going on in our lab that we are investigating, this might be the bigger change. But unfortunately, still quite a step for commercialization to be realized. Yeah, yeah, you you have to go through the the, the small scale lab process first, and I know that take. Can yeah. you actually talk about how long is the average process for developing uh, a, a greener material like you're working on right now? How long does it usually take for it to go from lab and scaled up to an industrial product? So for I, I know pretty well for this example I just showed because it was co-developed in Germany by a colleague. I would guess fifteen years. Um, it can be a quicker. It can be. A, it can take even more time. Of course, depends on the application, but it takes a lot of time from the idea to the final product. Right. Now, I mentioned I want to go into your your own background. So let's let's dial it back a little bit. And what was your introduction first to polymer science? First to polymer science. It was actually so I did uh, classic chemistry bachelor master study at that time in germany it was still a diploma but it's equivalent uh, to to a master so um five years 10 semesters chemistry i didn't see a polymer in that study <laughs> <laughs> then i started my phd on polymers but as, as you see polymer science today doesn't matter if in sustainability or generally it's very often Organic chemistry, as, uh, at least for the synthesis part, and we are synthetic organic chemists, modern organic synthesis, uh, synthesis routes apply to large molecules. So polymers were kind of new, but of course I was well-trained in organic chemistry, and then I did a PhD in, in polymer chemistry. I was introduced to a very broad scope of uh, polymers and applications. This was in the Netherlands. And they have a very nice graduate school nationwide. So I was trained also by experts from all around the world. This was amazing. So a funny or not funny, a, a really good concept. So they took all PhD students from the Netherlands that were interested in these courses. You could uh, subscribe for these courses and once a week drive to the middle of the Netherlands and they would fly in external experts from all over the world. And they would teach and they would teach you one day on their subject. And this was really, really great. And this was, of course, also a lot of Dutch uh, experts, but there were experts from the US, from Japan, from everywhere. So I learned admit polymerization, for instance, from Ken Wegener. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> he directly taught me admit polymerization. I learned ring opening polymerization from Hillmeyer. This was really amazing. It was really, really cool. Okay, this is crazy. 
So admit and ring opening, those are just two different techniques that are used to make polymers. But learning how to do admit from Ken Wagner and ring opening from Mark Hillmeyer, it's like learning to play basketball from Michael Jordan and golf from Tiger Woods. I mean, this is an unreal experience. That was really an incredible time, and they still do this. And with all their enthusiasm, not only their expertise, but also their enthusiasm, I was very convinced polymers are a good thing to continue with, but still no sustainability. That was an option I got very quickly after the PhD. There was an announcement at a very small German university, a so-called University of Applied Sciences. And there was this position to start a new group on sustainable chemistry. I didn't know what sustainable chemistry was at that time, but it sounded very interesting. And also from my general beliefs, I'm more a green type of person, let's say. So this was fitting my general interests as well as chemistry interests. And this is how it started, basically. Hello to our beautiful listeners. This is Jacob checking in just for a quick reminder that you're listening to the Polymer Science Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Meyer, a specialist of sustainable chemistry at KIT. I hope you are enjoying the show. And as always, please like, share, and subscribe because it helps us out just so, so much. Thanks again, and back to the show. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on how your, your own personality is green? Your own, the way you define yourself is you're, you're green. How, what, what are some aspects that maybe helped you develop that when you were growing up? How did you get to be in such a way? Well, I was always concerned about the environment, let's say. Of course, when you're younger, you're maybe less strict with your, what, what you do and what you don't do. But there are several things. So now, for instance, I try to buy sustainable clothes. Not easy, actually, but possible. Then again, you have to uh, think about when you're younger, you might not be able to afford it, actually, because they are still too expensive. But very simple things. And Germany is, of course, a very good place for that, for recycling and reusing and, and that kind of thing. So that was not only for me, but of course, uh, impregnated, let's say, to all the generation <laughs> that this is important. And other aspects are, of course, due to the animals. I don't like the animals to be killed. That's one thing. But of course, it's also much more CO2 neutral than eating beef, for instance. Right, yeah. For, for now, I'm that far that when I buy something, I have... Not every number in detail, but I have a general feeling if this has more or less or a larger or a smaller carbon footprint. And that really in everyday buying situations in the supermarket or whatever, this influences my consumer or how I behave as a consumer. Did you do a postdoc after you did your PhD? Very quickly, very short, because I got this opportunity very basically directly after the PhD. So I only did half a year postdoc. Okay. And the opportunity you're referring to is where you're at now, or was that something before? No, there was uh, two other steps in between that was um, basically an equivalent to an assistant professor in, in Germany, mm. where I got this opportunity half a year after the PhD. So at that moment, when you, when you first started to build a lab, how did your initial influences affect how you put together that, that first group? 
well, that first group, I wasn't selecting scientists, of course, if they are green themselves or not, but um, I was asking if they had general interests in that idea, of course. And the topic there, and this was good to start with, actually was kind of predefined. It was very open in the sense that do whatever you want, but you have to do it with renewables and you have to make polymers out of them. So that was easy and difficult at the same time, but uh, that was in 2006. So 14 years ago, and this wasn't a field in polymer science. I was really one of the very, very first ones that started to do polymers from renewables. And that was really, really good. I bet it was, yeah. So how, can you just build on that? How, how did that continue to grow from, from 2006 to now? So I was then uh, three and a half years at that small university, actually in Germany, but on the Dutch border. I was still living in the Netherlands uh, with my wife. She was still working in the Netherlands. As I said, very small university, but um, since this was such a new field and we were sparkling off ideas, basically, we were very successful from the beginning. So we pushed out from a new lab the first paper within the first 12 months. One of my best cited papers in green chemistry um, comes really from this first year and from a very, very good and very motivated postdoc, of course. Ana Anastasia did a, an excellent uh, job back then. Do you remember the, the title of the paper and the, the subject? The title, not altogether. It was about cross-metathesis of fatty acids to make monomers for polycondensation. Okay. And now, what's um, a down-the-line application of that project? Something, something tangible, something that a non-polymer scientist can imagine. The advance was in the metathesis reaction because we could lower the catalyst loading by a factor of at least 10 and also pushing both selectivity and conversion. So that was basically the scientific advance, and that came by sustainability, actually, because everybody was doing cross-metathesis reactions like an organic chemist in dichloromethane. That's the typical solvent. Catalysts in the lab are a sort of chemical ingredient that make reaction processes work more efficiently. But catalysts are often made of metals and other components which are very harmful to the environment. And the same goes for this dichloromethane solvent that he's referring to. Now, what Dr. Meyer and his group have done is modify this procedure, known as the cross-metathesis reaction, to reduce the amount of catalyst needed by 10 times and removed entirely the dichloromethane from this process. We just left away the solvent. Of course, if you do solvent-free reactions, basically in the fatty acid, you don't have dilution and the reaction works much, much more efficient. Plus, you save the waste. So renewable, less catalyst loading, less toxic solvent waste, it was green, greener. But now to the application, what you can do is you can make long-chain polyesters and they behave a little bit similar like uh, polyethylene. Like plastic? Of course, like, like, like a plastic bag, like a plastic. Actually, along the very same lines, there is a company by uh, Professor Grubbs who got the Nobel Prize for the metathesis reaction or his metathesis catalysts. It's a spin-off of his lab, and they are commercializing similar technology uh, at the very moment. But this is another example. It took 20 years. For You're talking about 20 years from... From the spin-off from Professor Grubbs. I think it's... I'm not sure if they are able to deliver at the moment, but it, uh, yeah, they, they have a pilot plant. 
what are some some of the biggest limiting factors when it comes to trying to do greener chemistry? What can make it difficult? I think there are little obstacles in an uh, academic lab. The biggest obstacle to really get it into a product is price. I always say the world would be much, much better if petroleum crude oil would be 10 times the price. Because it would be too expensive, you're saying? It would be, yeah. Why do we have environmental problems? Because I know some numbers, a jeans, a trouser that is in a European retailer shop might travel 30,000 kilometers. Okay, I just wanted to put that last comment into perspective. One pair of pants from manufacturer to retailer will travel approximately 30,000 kilometers. Or for my non-metric system friends, that's almost 20,000 miles. Are you kidding? That distance is equivalent to 75% of the circumference of Earth at the equator. For one pair of pants. For real? That's amazing. It's really amazing because the cotton is gained at some place and it's woven at another place. The color is put yet another place. It's traveling around in an airplane. And it can be up to 30,000 kilometers. And if gasoline would be much more expensive, then this problem would be solved. Not all problems, of course, but a lot of problems would be solved. The same here for polymers. Um, Why are polymers so damn cheap? Because crude oil is so damn cheap. If we would make it five times more expensive, uh, we could, let's say in a transition period of five to 10 years, we could substitute, I dare say, 90% of all of our polymers with renewables. The technology is there in our lab, in many other labs, like in Hulmeyer's lab, for instance. It's too expensive. That's the problem. What, what are some of the other sources for, we'll say, starting ingredients, starting chemicals for the, for the type of chemistries that we're trying to do here? You can start from low molecular weight components like fatty acid and terpenes. This is very well established. and partially also done in the industry for a long time. So then it's more about you have the double bonds of a fatty acid and a terpene and you have to efficiently functionalize it. I mentioned metathesis, thiolene reactions, whatever. Some efficient chemistry to make a suitable monomer out of it in a sustainable way that you can polymerize and then look at the properties afterwards. The other way around that we are more and more turning to in my lab now is use of carbohydrates. So cellulose is the most abundant biopolymer on Earth. Unbelievable large numbers, you can substitute all polymers with it. The problem with cellulose, of course, everybody knows you cannot dissolve a piece of paper anywhere. So you cannot do chemistry with it. You cannot functionalize it. You cannot get it in the shape you want to have it. And that's basically the problem. It's not thermoplastic. When you heat it, it undergoes first thermal degradation. So you cannot process it. But nature gives you actually a perfect and nice polymer. So you have to do a way around, either by functionalizing it or by dissolving it and then putting it in the form you want to. I'm not sure in Europe, so-called rayon fibers, cellulose fibers are made by so-called viscose process. But this is very, very toxic because CS2 is involved. And also, it's very harsh to the cellulose. There is molecular weight degradation. So still, if I remember correctly, 2 million tons per year are made via this process, quite something, for clothing, for instance. But it's not sustainable. There is a new process called the lyocell process, 
um, I mentioned sustainable clothing before. It's not available in large scale yet, but you can buy first T-shirts made via that lyocell process that is really considerably more sustainable than the old viscose process. So things are, are getting along. It's basically a complete, it's the same product, but a completely new technology. Now, what are some techniques you teach to your students to help them practice sustainable techniques in your lab? For example, when my co-host Dr. Buetes spoke with Dr. Nicolene Borgerman of Ava Sustain, Dr. Borgerman mentioned a very interesting low-effort, high-impact method to save energy just through efficient use of the lab refrigerators. So, for example, uh, making sure that it is very neatly organized to find items quickly, knowing exactly what you need before you open the door, and never, ever leaving the door open for extended periods. I mean, obviously, a fridge requires lots of energy to keep cold, and it has to work harder to maintain that temperature every time the door is opened. So are there any little things or big things like that that you like to share with your students to help with sustainability in your lab? Of course, we also discuss um, everyday sustainability things, uh, sometimes in the group meeting or just in the coffee corner. We didn't think about the fridge yet. It's a good idea. All right, good. <laughs> um, but we have more on the general topics like, like I mentioned, like the clothes or which type of food can I buy? What food has which kind of CO2 impact? So we have regularly such general discussions about everyday sustainability, I would call it. In the lab, not last year, I think the year before, really made a change. You know, um, classic organic chemistry, you have a cooler, you need a condenser. And for every reaction where it's really possible and we really tried a lot of solvents we changed to air cooling instead of water cooling and i think that's a really practical impact to save uh, safe water and actually it works surprisingly good the only solvent that really doesn't work i mean very low boiling solvents don't work very well but if you work in a high boiling solvent you don't have problems at all and you Actually, it's also a safety measure because you don't have the water floating around that might cause hazards if the the tube comes off or something like this. It happens. It, it's you know happened um, within in our department. It's happened during my time. Not not to me, thankfully, not in our lab, but it's happened in the department twice. And uh, right, it literally a floor was flooded. It's a very practical thing. Also, when we run the reactions in this um, air condensers. We are allowed to run overnight uh, reactions, and now a security officer is much more happy with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> does your is that security officer uh, uh, a member of the department, or is there? Do you have someone also within your lab that's like a designated safety Both. officer? Both. Okay. So we have one for the whole campus, one for the institute, one for each each group. Oh, interesting! Wow. I, I as far as I understand, I think ours is one per group and then we have the uh, i think it's environmental health and safety uh department or EHS and therefore the for the university uh oh mm. i guess we do have a departmental safety officer also so the the one for for the campus basically comes every 3 to 6 months uh sometimes you know that he comes sometimes you don't uh -huh. and then he goes through the checklist and Actually, actually, we are called uh, the safety working group because I really pay a lot of attention to that. Hardly any complaints ever. Also, my students, some of them are like, oh, why do we have to do this? But actually, most of them really see the point and it's a much safer working uh, environment. Mm -hmm. 
also now in the corona situation, actually, because some colleagues don't take it that serious. We did a lot of home office, start to do a lot of home office again. It's also, I mean, sustainability is, um, of course, we think about chemical sustainability, but it's also, so there's this whole thing about waste reduction and uh, what, what, what we know in the chemical lab, but it's also about uh, safety, basically, of the person. It's also a sustainability issue. Safety in terms of, not only in terms of how that an accident could happen, that's one thing, but also in terms of work security and stuff like this. Security, I mean, security of income. Yeah, making sure that that's stable. So sustainability is actually a very broad topic, uh, so to say. And so coming back to the students, most of them are very happy, actually, that this is taken rather seriously and not a superficial level. It's funny that you, you spoke about your students sometimes asking, why why do we, why does it have to be this strict, so to speak? And yeah. We all admit we started with that feeling under Dr. Simone. Dr. Simone has been very good about safety. So shout out to him for that. And uh, I think we've we've all, for the most part at least, probably turned around. So I can relate on both sides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, there's always a give and take. Like, yeah. I mean, So I'm very strict, for instance, on highly toxic chemicals. If you are not smart enough to avoid them, why should we still promote their use? And of course, you can publish a paper, and uh, you. but does it make sense? So some of them come with ideas and say, yeah, and this would be so easy, and I could use this and that. And then I'm like, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they learned, and actually, um, they come around with better ideas. And this is also how green chemistry develops. How can I avoid for instance, an isocyanate we had before. Or we just published in the beginning of a year a new synthesis protocol for isocyanides that avoids phosphorus oxychloride, also not a very nice chemical. So by thinking about this, you actually push the field along. It might in the first instance sound like, yeah, you're restricting yourself, but actually you're promoting. Maybe... One thing, every small step counts. It's very important. I'm very happy to see the field flourish as it does over the last decade. I think more people should join because the more ideas, the better. And I hope, I really hope, and I'm confident that as a scientific community, especially in sustainable polymer chemistry, we can provide a lot, not all, but a lot of uh, answers to uh, problems we are facing in the future. All types of environmental problems, actually, be it from CO2 reduction to dependence on fossil oil, what we quickly discussed, to also better and more sustainable polymeric materials in the sense that might, they might be easier to recycle and all different kinds of aspects. Wonderful. All right, Dr. Meyer, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you again so, so much for speaking with me. I, I very much enjoyed this conversation, and I really hope we can cross paths again in the future. Please uh, send my regards to Johan, and also stay safe, and thanks for your time. Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. And a big thank you to all of our listeners as well for tuning in. I hope you've learned something new from this episode about lab sustainability and greener chemistry. If you would like to know more, or if you would like to be featured on the show, please contact us at polymerSciencePodcast at gmail.com. And remember, 
Every single like, share, or subscribe is so tremendously helpful. So, hit those buttons on whichever platform you prefer, and we will love you forever. I mean, of course, we'll love you forever anyway. So, with that, stay safe, stay smart, and stay healthy. This is Jacob Sheckman. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.